0: You're listening to the Elephant in the Room property podcast where the big things that never get talked about Actually, get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyers agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property.
1: Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you want to listen on to find out what he has to say about all the tricks and traps of depreciation. I mean, I have to admit, I actually learned a few things in this episode that you know these little things that investors can make these small decisions that could cost them a hell
2: of a lot of money. If you buy a brand new property today and you rent it out for a year and then you move in, you'll kill your deductions from that point that you go in on those plant and equipment items because the next time you rent it, those assets are sort of previously used. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Camp And we have a
1: cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started... Everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking.
0: In this episode, we picked the brains of Mike Mortlock. Mike is the Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors, which was recently recognised as Australia's fastest-growing quantity surveying firm by the Australian Financial Review Fast 100, no less. He's completed thousands of residential and commercial schedules from units to houses to trout farms. MCG were the first quantity surveying firm to publish real data on the average deductions for property investors and he's also the host of Geared for Growth, Property Investing Podcast. He's interviewed both Chris and I, but not sure whether those interviews will be available to listen to before this one goes to air, but, you know, we're friends, aren't we?
2: Yeah, stay tuned.
0: (laughs) Now, when we asked Mike about the lasting message he'd like to leave you listeners, he said that he'd like people to be very sceptical of the media spookers and to take your time on the due diligence stuff and build a property team, which is very boring, of course, since it means that we're all in agreement. (laughs) So to spice up our chat, Mike has brought along some very interesting statistics. Welcome, Mike.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Thanks, Mike. Good to see you.
1: Yeah, you too as well. And uh, enjoyed being on your podcast, which was um, which was great. So you've done some research and you reckon about 38% of property buyers buy new property? Yep. Um, investors. Investors, yeah. Investors, sorry, yeah, yeah, investors. I mean, you said that people need to be sceptical of spruikers. You know, yeah. Do you have any horror stories that we could kick off our program with?
2: I think I've come to the right show for being sceptical of spruikers but um, yeah <laughs> look we, we don't sort of analyse properties too much after we've done our work but it'd be really interesting to go and see people that are, are purchasing for X amount for units off the plan and what those valuations are later on in time. We're certainly seeing that units off the plan in a number of capital cities are not really great candidates for capital growth and at the moment people are probably sitting on negative equity but I I think it just sort of comes down to we're getting it asked about. We don't have the plan, we th- sort of think about the property and the hot spot for, first, not necessarily what we're trying to get to, whether it's a retirement income or something like mm. that. but certainly I've seen people you know purchasing apartments in uh, developments and then uh, six, 12 months later, someone's got something very similar for a hundred grand less. Mm. And, and that really worries me. Yeah. And what
1: do you think that's, why is that happening, do you think? What's 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 happened there, do you think?
2: Well, like people, gla- people bl- blame the, the glossy brochures. It's always gloss, isn't it, right? I wonder as a coating, gloss gets the most sort of criticism. But mm. I, I think it's just this the sharp marketing stuff that goes into the development stuff, all of the lifestyle. You know, you see the children sort of running down the lane in the housing mm. estates and all that sort of stuff. You know, psychologists used to sort of help people. Now they help sell things, right? Mm. Uh, I think that's a bit of a concern thing. And, and I think that it just plays on the emotions and, and people, they're, they're not as objective as they ought to be in looking at an investment property. It's it's kind of like they'll look at it and they go, oh yeah, I would live there. So it's probably a good investment. Mm. Some of the best investments are places that might make your skin crawl or they're just not suited to your family or the way yep. that you want to live.
1: What's well, it quite an interesting point really. It's probably not gloss anymore though, is it? It's probably like more of a matte paper. <laughs> yeah, matte, like GSM. Stuff or
2: stuff. Or <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, um, heavy stock. <laughs> yeah.
1: But, I mean, it's true, though. Like, we, you know, we want to have live in a nice place. We want to have a, you know, tell our friends that we live in this nice new building and we've bought this nice new and it's got this kind of whole lifestyle. Yeah. You rock up and say, I've just bought this two-bedroom brick, uh, boring, red you know, brick. red brick apartment, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's in a block of six and it's got you know, like old features and you yeah. need to put a new kitchen and a bathroom. It hasn't got that kind of wow factor when yeah. you're telling people, does it?
2: Or, I've built, you know, I've bought a strata titled warehouse in Campsie or something like that. That might be the best investment you could make at that particular mm. time. That's a hypothetical, of course. I haven't done my due diligence on the warehouses there's or that m- Campsy. There's not many
0: warehouses in Campsy no. yeah, there you go. That, are, that are residential. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it's interesting, though, that... Um, talk about some investments might make your skin crawl. <laughs> Did you have something in mind when you said that? Oh, I, I've, I've seen a
2: lot of nasty stuff in property inspections that I've done. I mean, the amount of times I've seen a, a doon Animate itself from out of nowhere in a property that was supposedly vacant, um, from the property <laughs> manager giving us the keys. You know, I've seen I've seen drugs, drugs paraphernalia, lots of handcuffs, some of them fluffy. Mm. But yeah, certainly places that actually <laughs> on paper would be would be good investments, yeah. and they just kind of there's too much grunge. You know, like I wouldn't say that I I, I live uh, you know as a one percenter or any any sort of posh domicile myself, but there are some places where I kind of think. Ugh, I've got to get out of here.
1: What do you think happened there? How's the investor? Have they bought that site unseen, like if they've gone into state and bought something
2: online, or yeah, I think that that, that is a lot more prevalent these days. And I, and I know that uh, even some, some buyers agents will do that on behalf of clients and not physically sort of see it themselves. Yeah, mm. um, it, it's a little bit more prevalent. And I, and I think that sometimes if you're if you're looking for particularly cash flow properties which mm. might be a little bit cheaper, it attracts the sort of person that might. Depreciate the property at a faster rate than somebody else. So you can I get something that looks in there. Yeah, there we go. There's the, a little
0: the, Attract somebody who might depreciate the property at a faster rate than somebody else. So what you're basically saying is a crap tenant. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I, I could probably I could
2: probably do politics, right? I'd mm. make it sort you of sound very so palatable. You beautifully, beautifully
0: <laughs> phrased. Yeah. <laughs>
1: but it's true, right? Like, and it's quite a big point for investors to, mm. to think about is, you know, when you are buying properties that are in Outer suburbs or in rural locations or where there's lots of, you know, it let's say social there's social problems. problems yeah. yeah. And let's say the incomes aren't there and the, you know, lots of renters. Um, yeah. you know, unfortunately you start to get problems with tenants yeah. and you know, when you, the, the end of the day it's an asset that you want to keep the value and make sure that you continue to rent it out. And if you do get problems with a tenant, getting a tenant out isn't easy. Right. And yeah. then especially if they damage the property, you've got to go and fix it and get another tenant. And so. You've got to be really careful who you rent your property to, I guess. Yeah. But
0: you're a, sorry, you're a quantity surveyor, so you talk about depreciation because obviously that's something you talk about all the time. Can you get better deductions if your tenants depreciate the property faster than somebody else might?
2: No, not not really. I mean, back in the day you used to be able to sort of scrap assets that basically are sort of worn out and they might have a residual value and you can get some instant deductions based on that. But the tax commissioner has statutory rates of depreciation really. So, carpet has an effective life of 10 years and depending on your method that'll give you your depreciation rate. So, often people sort of think we're going in like tenants, you know, we're taking photos and notes and measurements or and we're looking at, oh, you know, that carpet, you've worn that out a bit heavier, so it's depreciating faster. Now it's all a flat statutory thing. But I want to make the point that, Tenants aren't necessarily the only problem here and I you know I certainly don't want to say that that people in a, a low socioeconomic bracket are all going to degrade a property faster. Landlords can be the problem problem as well and, and we're often sort of used as a bargaining chip. Like we might have a tenant say, I'm not going to let you in to do an inspection for the landlord, and we, we you know we go back and forth and we try and be flexible and do it after hours and all that sort of stuff and explain what we're doing, and then we find out that it's because the landlord wouldn't fix a tap, mm. right? So they're like, he's not getting that or she's not getting that, you know, us coming in until that is sort of looked after. So I think you can be really, really mean. And if you are buying the cheaper properties and it's all about cash flow, you can take it too far. And as you say, Chris, the cost of getting someone out or or the cost of repairing the damage that they can do in an afternoon is astronomical Mm. compared to a tap or a fly screen or silly stuff like that.
0: It's actually interesting. A a lot of property managers I know have actually sacked their landlords who refuse to actually really look after their investment. Yeah. And, and I think that that is a really good point that you bring up for our listeners to understand too, that as a landlord, you are, you know, we're always, our message is obviously buy quality property and a quality property tends to attract quality tenants, but at the same time, you've got to be a quality landlord. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an asset that you've got to look after. And if you've got good tenants, looking after your property encourages them to report things as they go wrong yeah. as well. And then you can keep on top of things. And it's, it is a very important point.
2: It's hard to do though, right? Like if you're starting a business or there's lean times, you don't want to, sort of get rid of those people but in the end it, it pays off to do so because they're re, they're going to refer people like themselves people that they're friends with that maybe have the same attitudes and it affects your your stats you know your vacancy rates and all that sort of stuff because of, of how they're sort of carrying on with the tenants so yeah I, I would in, I encourage property managers to do that um, to have the, the courage to, to say look I don't want to represent you because this doesn't stand for what I what I believe in.
0: Now we've done an entire episode on Labor's negative gearing policy and the Mm. potential impact on the property market and we don't really want to rehash what we've already spoken about but can you shed some light on what people are actually claiming back on tax?
2: Yeah, so um, we, as as you mentioned in the intro, we were the first quantity surveyor to share real world data, mostly because I was annoyed that our industry was sort of saying, on average, people get uh, five to ten thousand dollars worth of deductions back. We we a thousand schedules. Um, we actually did a smaller sample size first, and we found that it was nine thousand one hundred and eighty three dollars. In our in our figure of uh, of a thousand properties, we found that figure to be nine thousand four hundred and fifteen. So so really, that nine thousand four hundred and fifteen is your average first year deductions under the diminishing value method. I don't want to put people to sleep and talk about no. the different <laughs> methods, but that's the best one in the short term, right? Yeah. And so hang on
0: a minute. So the deduction means that you deduct that from your taxable income, yeah. which means that really it's costing the government how much?
2: Yeah, so if you're on 100k and you've got 10 grand worth of deductions, the government now only sees you earning 90,000 dollars a year. So, so based on our average of 9,415 dollars, you, you're actually going to get 3,484 back in your pocket if you're on, say, 100 or 150k. Um, if you're on 200k in the top marginal uh, rate, you're getting you know 4,200 thereabouts back in your pocket, or around about three grand if you're on 50k. So, so it's important to to understand that the deduction aren't going back in your pocket. You know, it's going to be somewhere around just, just shy of half of that. Yeah. But that's what the the power of depreciation is. And it just it really helps with your sort of serviceability of that property uh, on an after-tax basis.
1: Yeah, I mean, the I think that's pretty crazy. A lot of investors sometimes don't even go and get a depreciation schedule, right? They just think, oh, it's an old building. Mm. I don't need to do it. That's yeah. a big
2: one. That's mm. a big one. Like it's 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 too old to do it. Because a lot of people, uh, they have the idea, uh, they, they've picked up one tiny little snippet of, of depreciation facts um, and that's that there's a cut-off date for the building structure. It used to be 1985 but now it's September 87. And and for some reason, property investors knew this whereas they didn't really tend to know anything out, else mm. about depreciation. <laughs> so firstly, we had to re-educate them that really the date has shifted because it used to be 24. Five years at 4% now it's 2.5% for 40 years so there's yep. that little window that's kind of disappeared now but then we needed to say okay well if the original structure was built in the 60s or 70s that doesn't mean that everything else inside is that age like we don't see 60s and 70s kitchens in Sydney because <laughs> like why would you do that why would you not spend you know 20 or 30 grand to charge an extra 200 bucks a week in rent you do see it a little bit in regional yep. areas but you've just got to think if I've bought prior to 80 what is still original? And chances are the kitchen, the bathroom, maybe extension, a driveway, a carport. These can all still uh, attract depreciation deductions on what is the building structure.
1: Yeah. So I guess for our listeners here, even if you are buying an older style apartment, let's say, or a house, you know, there could be you know a lot of depreciation there. Yeah that, you know, just by going through the building and, you know, you sometimes see huge depreciation in these buildings. Massive
2: and more than a brand new constructed four bedroom house, because people might've bought, you know, a fairly substantial place that was built at the turn of the century and they've sunk 700 grand in renovations into it, Mm. why they're sort of renting that out. I'm not sure, but maybe their plan is that that'll be their principal place of residence down the track. And they're quite happy to, to put that amount of money into it. We found, we found in our analysis of a thousand, um, schedules, that the average deductions are just shy of 200K. Um, that's for all sort of property types. But if, yeah, if you're putting that amount of money into it, you're gonna, you're gonna blow that average out of the water. You might be sitting on $30,000 a year worth of deduction. So it's pretty significant.
0: What about if somebody else has renovated the property? So say you bought, you know, in a 60s building and the previous owner did the renovations and then you've bought it.
2: People love that because you get to profit from their blood, sweat and tears. Um, So if the previous owner did some, some works to the property, let's say they did an extension, We're qualified to estimate the value of that, and you can claim that because you've given consideration for that as part of the property purchase, right? It might have only cost you a hundred grand less if it wasn't renovated, but you paid extra because you got that asset, so you're entitled to to claim it. So, with the new
1: changes of the rules last year, Mm. or it's two years ago, seventeen, wasn't it? Yeah. How does that affect that though? Does it? You know, do you still get to claim for all the internal sides of that renovation?
2: Uh, yes and no. If, if The only way that you can claim the internal stuff, and by that we sort of talk about things like kitchen appliances and carpets and blinds and that sort of stuff. The, the, the only way that you can claim that if you're purchasing from today is you're buying a brand new property, yep. or you're actually installing those assets yourself. And there's a few caveats with that. Like if you buy a brand new property today and you rent it out for a year and then you move in, you'll kill your deductions from that point that you go in on those plant and equipment items because the next time you rent it, those assets are sort of previously used. Really? Yeah. Whoa.
0: Oh, there's a little elephant in the room. Mm. I didn't know that. Yeah. So
1: you're saying if you buy, I didn't know that. So if you buy a new apartment and then as an investment and then you say, look, oh, I'm moving house in between two houses or something like that. I need to just live somewhere. I'll go live in my apartment. Yeah. You're potentially writing off Huge amount of depreciation.
2: Yeah, there's there's been some um, there's been some education that we've had as part of our institute that, that basically sort of says that anecdotally, even if you're staying in your um, your property for a weekend to renovate it, you can actually trigger a problem where those assets become previously used, and it's a big problem wow. for holiday homes as well. Yeah. So the the best tax advice um, and, and accountants are always clever at finding ways around it. If you actually get your mum to go and stay at your holiday house, technically. You should charge her rent, and if you're a nice person, buy her a present to the equivalent amount back, right? But if you're, if you or a related entity or something like that is, is going into that property, then it ceases to become an investment for a short time, and you can kill those plant and equipment deductions.
1: Wow, that's really interesting because you know, like that's a small little thing. It's oh, well, why don't we just go stay at our investment property, or we're in between tenants. Yeah, um, we'll let my mate stay in it, or whatever it is and you know huge tax consequences though. yeah
2: and I love the small little things right because I'm sort of a, a depreciation nerd right mm. you can you can tell by you know i the data that we sort of try and share just shows that there's something slightly wrong with me as a as an individual but <laughs> another thing that we found <laughs> another thing that we found is that you know when when the announcement w- was was made um, in May 2017 they said that that all previous purchases would be grandfathered so if you exchanged prior the 9th of May it's the Wild West old rules. Mm. But there was one little caveat that people didn't pick up on for a while and that was that the property had to be income producing in that financial year. So if you didn't have it rented out by the 30th of June 2017, you weren't old rules, right? Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So that
0: means if I say I'm living in my home that I bought and to live in and then yep. I, my plan is to upgrade and go and you know, buy something else and, yep. and keep this property as an investment, Yeah. Even though I owned it before May two thousand seventeen, yeah. I can't claim depreciation on the plant and equipment. The plant
2: and equipment, yeah. You still get the building structure, yeah. but because it wasn't available for rent, wow, and that's that a, is a
0: tricky one. And yeah. I don't, yeah, two elephants we've so got from you. So through far. that whole mm. year,
1: if you didn't, if you let's say you were living in it and you claimed it as your home, yeah, if it didn't go on the market to rent in that in that year, that financial yeah. year, yeah, it's not seen as an investment property that you own prior.
2: Uh, yeah, you, you, you will not be under the old rules that mean that you could claim plant and equipment, move in and out as you please. Obviously you can't claim it when you're in, but when you move back out, like under the old rules, yeah. you'd then be able to start mm. claiming again. And that's like, it seems really nuanced, but I wanted to sort of dig into the data and find like how many people might have actually got caught out by that. We've certainly seen some. In our analysis where we looked at 1,000 residential schedules, we, we, we found that around about 22, 23% uh, the number escapes me <laughs> exactly, but 22, 23% of people actually occupy their property before it becomes an investment property, and that's way higher than what we thought. Like if if, if I if someone asked me, I, I would have said I don't know, maybe eight to ten percent of people would mm. live in their investment before it becomes an investment property. Property. So what we think? But,
0: but w- do we think that that's partly because of the first home buyer grants and and yeah you know, that there's been a big incentive for people to live in it for 6 to 12 months and then the whole plan was always as an investment yeah. um but
2: that's that a way really they good question grant. that's a really good question and 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 we kind of thought I didn't want that to be true because then it's not as interesting as a stat right people are just <laughs> actually being clever <laughs> and you know they they're claiming the first home grant and that sort of thing but we actually found out that the average number of days that people lived in the property was Somewhere close to 1,400 days, wow. right? right? Okay. Yeah. So if you're just doing it for that incentive, that average then. would have been a lot mm. lower. So certainly, there's a there's that that is a factor, mm. but it's that it's not the majority factor yeah. from our view. Interesting. Yeah, and the other two factors probably would be that you've bought
1: a house or a unit with the intention of when you do move out to buy another house, you're going to keep that as an investment property. So that would be
0: Well, a lot of people don't actually buy with that intention. It's just that they're actually doing better than they expected to be by the time they're ready to upgrade and they can afford to keep it. And so then they look at it and say, oh, I think I'll keep it. And But they haven't set themselves up originally. They haven't set up the right tax structures or the borrowing structures and all that sort of stuff initially to actually maximise that. So all their equity is in that property. Yeah. you know, yeah. so, and cause I talked to a lot of people in that boat, actually done yeah. better than they thought, you yeah. know, that they anticipated.
1: Yeah. And that's very true. You know, there's lots of people who have done, you know, they've bought a house and it's doubled or whatever it's happened and they didn't set their, their loan up the right way and they did what they thought was the right thing to do. And that's to pay off your home loan, which is what everyone tells you to do. So mm. they, they went principal and interest and then they smashed their loan down and by the time they you know, want to move out of that house, they've almost paid the house off and there's so much equity there. And they they come to someone like me and then they go, oh, Chris, you know, we're thinking about moving from, you know, this house to this house and we want to keep our current house. And it very rarely in those scenarios makes sense to keep the house. It generally makes sense to upgrade, sell the house that you're in or the apartment, pay off the new house you've moved into and then go back into the market and buy another investment. And it's a real big, like, That's that's, that's,
2: education. That's a really interesting point that you make. You you know, from an analysis point of view, it's probably better to get rid of that old house. But people are so sort of jazzed up with the idea that, oh, now we've become an accidental investor. And in fact, when we shared this data, that's what the journalist sort of titled the story, you know, the Mm. the rise of the accidental investors. And I think that there's you know, often there's a sentimental attachment to that property as well. So we don't we don't always behave perfectly well in a vacuum analytically, we might kind of go, oh, it's a bit easy, like we'll just sort of keep that, then we don't have to worry about, you know, do we, do we try and find the property ourselves or do the research? But. You know, that is one thing, that uh, one mistake that I sort of see property um, investors doing. Um, They might buy a property that's already got a tenant in there and they keep the same property manager because it's easy. Now, they might be the best person, but Mm -hmm. it's worth interviewing other people or they'll buy something around the corner from where they live. And I kind of, you know, it's hard. You don't want to be sort of rude to people, but in my head, I'm thinking, what are the chances that of all the, the suburbs in Australia, you happen to live in the top prospect for capital growth as an investment Mm. as, you know, (laughs) compared to the, you know, the rest of the country. Yeah.
1: I mean, you're saying that's the elephant, right? Like, you know, and that's (laughs) what you know, it's so true. I mean, if you do think of things rationally and logically and you talk through the upgrade and selling and, you know, it takes a, a, a while, probably takes, you know, 15 minutes, half an hour sometimes to really talk it through. But what they don't want to do is they don't really, they think that you should never sell yeah. because there's a belief that you buy and hold and you never sell property, but yeah. if it's your home, you're not paying capital gains tax. And so really the costs are really the selling costs of the agent, stamp duty again, and if you can like kind of get a bigger tax write off by buying it again and then yeah. having lower home debt, you end up having a life that's a lot less stressful, a lot yeah. less home debt and a lot better tax advantages for this one painful experience of selling and then yeah. buying it again. and. I think the big realization is when you ask the client at the end and say, if you could buy any property in Australia, would you buy the house as an investment, would you buy this house? Yeah. And then they go, well, probably not. I've obviously bought, want to keep it because I have lived there. Yeah. And then they start to really think through and go, actually, well, yeah, maybe it is the right thing to sell. But, you know, investing where you live, that's just such a huge common one, isn't it? I yeah. want to be able to see it. I want to be able to drive past it. But does that really matter whether it's, uh, you know? Well, I
2: mean, it, it shouldn't. It does to people. That's why they keep doing it, right? Mm. But, uh, but I think it's a, it's, it's a crazy thing. Uh, and it, and it's, an, it's another thing that ties into that psychology of, oh, you know, I could see myself living in there so I can understand that a tenant would w- want to rent it. I mean, my Saturday nights, often I'm in bed at 9.45 after an antiques roadshow or something like that. That's not how millennials are living, right? <laughs> so we need to consider that there are people that are different from mm. ourselves.
0: We do. (laughs) And I often say to clients, you know, I know you can't imagine living there, but could you imagine living there when you were a student or when you were in your first job or when you were, you know, between traveling or whatever, you know, like, I mean, at a different stage in your life, could you imagine living there? Not right now, of course. Yeah, I think the thing around buying around the corner is also that sort of confirmation bias. You know, it's like, oh, I've made a good decision already. Mm. And so therefore to buy another property in the same suburb is just reinforcing the fact that I already made a good decision. And the fact I've made two decisions in the same suburb means that that's a really good decision to make mm. it this sort of loop.
2: Yeah. But then you ask sort of the diversification question and you kind of think, well, is that is that a good decision? You know, if this suburb is going down, I've got all my eggs in that ...particular basket, I'd much rather be be spread out as, as much as I can.
0: Yeah, and I look, I think that Chris was saying it before about you might ask somebody after they've owned a property, it's like, would you buy it again... You know, I think most people actually don't know enough about property to even answer that properly. You know, they, they would say no. I spoke to a guy yesterday. He said to me, oh, you would never want to hear this. I never want to buy another investment property. I said, why? What happened? You know, what was your story? And he said, well, you know, I did. I had two. They were in regional areas. I had terrible tenants. They were so far away. That there was no capital growth and and it was just a terrible experience. Yeah, mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, of course – Someone like that would say, no, I'd never buy that again. But then, Mm. you know, somebody who actually hasn't had that experience but actually fundamentally doesn't own a good investment property, they just don't know it's not a good investment property because it hasn't hurt them by having a bad tenant or a bad experience like that, or they haven't actually gone to sell and therefore found out they've lost money then they feel quite good about the fact that they own an investment yeah, property. Yeah, and they
2: might not have you know, studied economics at university and considered the time value of money and things like exactly. that. Exactly. I mean, the, the stats are, are telling us that the average investor buys one investment property and it's tied up in those things. They have an awful experience or they buy in the wrong area and they don't see that growth, so they're just sort of stuck with that. Mm. I mean, that's a really unusual stat for a, a property-loving nation and, and a nation that understands that our retirement... Uh, nest egg is, is not really going to be enough with pensions and that sort of stuff. People aren't getting it right. And, uh, I really hope that, you know, through education and podcasts like this, mm. that's something that we can do, right? We can't save babies, right? I'm not clever enough to be a surgeon or something like that. But if we can encourage people to, to get the right team around them and, and make educated decisions on their investments, then hopefully it sort of changes their life. They can retire early, they can spend more time with their children, they can, you know, not be under stress their entire life. You know, that that's meaningful for me. And, and, and that's why I like, uh, you know, participating in conversations like this. Well,
0: it's definitely meaningful for me as well. And I'm pretty certain it's meaningful for Chris. So you said that, you know, the the majority of investors only buy one. Have, mm. you, have you got a number on that?
2: Yeah. So like it's 73% at mm. last count. Um, and I think that there's only around about 200,000 people that own six or more. I think yeah. it's, that's around about close, you know, and, and six or more, we could probably argue that that's about the point where you really sort of have achieved some success that could really fund your retirement. I mean, like if you've got um, ten investment properties and they're half a million dollars each, and you get them down to the point where you can sell five and then you've you've got them out right, then you're probably living on a hundred grand a year. and for a lot of people, that sounds fantastic for plenty of people, certainly in 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 sydney and and Melbourne working in you know degree qualified jobs they're kind of thinking, yeah, oh, I might have to cut some corners there or the maserati's not looking really good mm.
1: but well, I mean it's interesting these stats because you know, when we're in these bubbles, we start to assume that everyone's like us or everyone's earning the same amount of money or everyone's got the same amount of wealth and, you know, you can very quickly, you know, not understand actually what's happening. And when you do look at the stats, you know, I think it's like 85% of taxpayers don't own a property, you know, and 15% do own one and then you're saying now 75% of those own just one property, you know? And so you start to think, well, how many people have actually big property investors and how many, what percentage? And it's it's pretty scary that, um, it's not actually as much as you think. Yeah. Um, and I, I agree that, you know, why don't some, if you had one property and it did well and you did have negative gearing and you had servicing, wouldn't you go and buy another one? Mm. And it shows that, you know, seven out of 10 don't ever get the second one. Yeah. And you know, a lot of them do just keep one property because it's not working or, And, you know, and then once you get bitten once, you know, do you go back in and buy another? No. And so I think it's a big problem, you know. People
2: don't want to sell it. So they might have a a bad experience, but they don't want to sell the the property because there's a really big psychological factor of loss aversion. People mm. don't want to lock in that loss. It might have done nothing or it might be ticking along. and It's not costing them any money, but it's not really growing. So they're like, I don't want to get rid of it in case it booms and that sort of thing. Uh, but really, you're absolutely right. If, if you're onto a good thing, you rinse and repeat. You do it again, right? Mm. If someone sort of says, this restaurant's fantastic, you go there and you're like, yes, it is. You don't not go back, right? Mm. So people aren't going back, and I think the reason is because they're not they're not purchasing the right property. Um, you know, most of our investors are probably in the sort of twenty five to forty five age bracket. Like that's just a just a weird stat, I guess. We sort of attract people with our marketing that sort of agree with with what we're about. Um, I'm pushing up slowly towards the top end of that that bracket. Um, But, you know, people are are buying at that age. So there's plenty of time to see a couple of cycles, right? And for the right property, they should be sitting on enough equity to get three or four or five. Yeah. The key is there
1: though is that they actually realise it's not a very good property. They go through the pain, sell it, you know, take that loss, let's say, yeah. and then go back and then go through the process again and re-educate themselves. It's a lot of, like, thinking, a lot of time in their life to, to go through that stressful experience. But, you know, they just haven't really got the, you know, the the willpower, I guess, to do that. Uh,
0: yeah, but maybe it's not just the willpower. I mean, there's a lot of conflicting and confusing information out there. I and mean, It's one of the reasons why, you know, this podcast exists, for instance, mm. is because we want to make sure that people understand there is good good information, there are good things to make decisions on and there are bad things to make decisions on and bad information out there. So all that wishful thinking... Um, you know, we did an episode on wishful thinking, actually. Huh? It was episode with Lorna Patton or 48. No, 40, yeah, 48, I think. Look it up, guys. Uh, maybe 47, actually. I think it was 47. But, you know, it's why do we do this? Why do we fall for sales pitches? Why do we fall for spru- the things that Spruikers say? Why do we fall for the glossy brochures from developers? And it's this idea of we want it to be easy. Mm. But the thing is, it's actually not easy and it's a bit boring. Like you said, you know, you've basically got to invest, buy a good asset. And trust in the fact you bought a good asset and let it do its thing over time. Yeah. Cause you know, you ride those cycles and then in 20 years time, you know, life is incredibly different if you've actually bought a good asset and just let it do its thing. Where the problem is people aren't buying good assets most of the time. Yeah. And I would hazard, and I haven't actually put any hard numbers around this, but I really honestly think only 5 to 10% of available property at any given time is actually any good for investors. Yeah. I really think that. We'll
2: call that investment, yeah, investment grade, grade stock mm. or yeah, something yeah. like that. I, I think you're right. People focus on the wrong things and it's a quagmire. I I, I don't sort of want to... Whack the average investor—it's it, really, really difficult. Hard. And you—and—and and, and I'm specialised in in one thing, but there's a whole—you know—there's a whole wagon wheel of other spokes yes. that I don't understand very well. Um, and and I've learnt enough to sort of spot some of the garbage in in the media, but that's because you know writing and reading—you mm. know—for the last fifteen years or something like that. And in, and when it comes to focusing on the wrong things, I mean, I'm a depreciation guy, right? And people ring me up and they sort of say, "I want an investment. I'm paying too much tax. What's the best?" for Depreciation, and in my view, it's the worst investment. Right? Mm. It's it's a it's a unit in a block of four hundred with a gym and a pool and a basement yeah. car park and a concierge and all that sort of stuff. Now. I haven't heard a lot of people making a killing out of these high-rise development things, but from a a depreciation point of view, they're gold, right? Because you own a percentage of the lift and, you know, a lift can cost a million dollars and I've seen buildings with six of them, right? Mm. And you think about that. Well, I might own, you know, half a percent of that. So, you know, I've got, you know, $40,000 worth of lift that I actually own. But then you think you've got to service the bloody thing, right? And then if something is coming up for rent in your building there might be 80 other currently for rent. And the same is true for sales. So you've got, you've got this little local massive supply problem that you're going to have forever.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, we, we often hear, or often hear people say, oh, but, you know, after they're all sold and settled and everything, then, then the dust settles and it's all good. And I'm like, actually, no, it's not ever good because if you've got a building where there's a lot and it's all the same, then, yeah, you, you hit them double whammy. Your yield is compressed and your capital growth is compressed. I don't get why you'd even invest in a building where you're not getting good yield and you're not getting good capital growth. It's just nuts. Yeah. And you're taking enormous risks. Yeah.
1: While we're there, so on new buildings, obviously Opal's <laughs> come out over um, the last month mm. and, you know, papers are loving it because, you know, obviously the Australian public are reading it and clicking it, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's a huge demand from the public to read about the Opal building. Yeah. And I think it's scaring a lot of people because it's like, well, what does this really mean? Is yeah. my has my buildings got problems? And yeah, yeah. You know, I guess so. What's your view on the whole Opal story and you know how because you see buildings, you've seen more yeah. buildings than most people. Yeah. Um what's your what's your view? Yeah,
2: well, I mean we're we're involved on in the in the pre construction side of things. So we work for, for for banks doing progress claims for developments and that sort of stuff. I think the, the, the government uh, in in all its forms, you know, from from local councils all the way to, to federal, makes a lot of money off property transactions, right? We're talking maybe a quarter of New South Wales revenue, I think, is from from property. Um, I have to go back and, and research these stats. We'll have a little asterisk at the bottom. Actually, it was off by six percent, but it's significant, right? That's <laughs> what I, that's what there. I'm getting yeah. at. So so I mean, the, the lo, local local councils are getting these you know de- development applications with with heavy fees. They're wanting to sort of push them through um you know they they've created this 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 niche for private certifiers to come in and make sure that we're accelerating that and we're getting you know a good speed with that. And I mean, you've got to look at incentives. I think incentives are often uh, the driver yeah. for, for, for various decisions, right? And these private certifiers are incentivized by the work and a developer wants a private certifier that's not going to give them too many problems, right? Like a real estate agent trying to sell a property is going to have their little fold-out brochure with pest and building business cards. You can't tell me that they're going to be wanting to give the the most thorough pest and building guys, right? They'll get a reputation as that's the guy that makes sales fall over, right? And I, and, and and there's been
1: no independence there, right? So the yeah. builder can pick its own certifier. Is yeah, that, that's true. Yeah. yeah so yeah. like it's, I'm going to pick my own auditor. So you you need to check that I'm doing the right thing. And it's you know if you're a developer with quite a bit of, you know, power, mm. you've got a lot of work yeah. and you're a certifier and you want work, yeah. you know, unfortunately you're going to give them what they want.
2: Yeah. And then, and private certifiers, I think have become the scapegoat in this. I, I think we, we need to, to, to wait for the, the whole story to transpire to see if there was any issue there. Yeah. I, I, I can see off the bat there is a, there is an incentive issue with private certifiers.
0: Yeah. I think, and it, it's an endemic problem in the system Mm. as well. So I agree that we've got to be very careful about scapegoating anyone. But I did hear a story recently about a plumber who became a private certifier. Right. (laughs) And it's like, that's good, but is he actually certifying anything more than the actual plumbing works? And apparently, yes. Now, I don't know. As I said, this is only anecdotal, mm. but I think when you've got this acceleration of, of development and yeah. construction. And like you say, the private certified system has been designed to accelerate it. Yeah. So therefore you're going to have a whole whole new industry formed yeah. to service this newly um, minted idea of accelerating development. And obviously our state government in New South Wales has, has, has changed the density rules around, you know, main row, arterial roads and train, train lines and stuff like that. So you've got this sort of rezoning um, that's ex- encouraging it as well you know you're going to have a demand for qualified people and that's going to put pressure on that side of the industry to actually staff it right yeah you know, I mean, you can just see where all this happens, can't
2: you? Yeah. You, I mean, you look at what happened with ceiling insulation. I mean, you know, people died, right? Mm. It, it, it became mm. a gold rush. And it was sort of like, you know, back when Perth was booming, people would leave their, you know, jobs in finance to go and drive a truck for 200 yep. grand a year, right? Mm. You know, that, that, uh, I'm not sure if, if, if there's, you know, some perfect parallels between private investing, but I think, you know, getting a, a development application through council has always been very arduous. Occasionally you hear, uh, of a certain development that has an arrangement with the council where they guarantee you know seven day turnaround on DAs I don't know what sort of Meetings happen behind the scenes yeah. to, to make that happen, but but it's a it's a pain point, right? So people always look for the path of least resistance and private certifiers. I, I'm not sure. I think maybe they should be appointed mm. um, by the the local authority rather than someone. I think there is some some legislation get... coming out that's going to make sure they're
1: independent. Yeah, uh, so that's that's good. But I mean, that's one part of the process, right? And I think. Yeah, the council does want to approve it because they make money on the development, but also they make money on all the rates Yes, um, and other things once that building's built. So, you know, it's, it's easy for the council to say, well, if we build another 10,000 apartments, that's 10,000 more rates and this is good for our business. And mm. But where, after that, what other things do you think have happened, not just in this building, but are happening that are causing these problems?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's I don't know too much about the specifics of the case and 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 what the actual construction issues were, but I think that the when you when you think about it, it's it's like these these ships that come into dock, and you know, hear anecdotes of them park there. It's like ten thousand dollars an hour, right? So everything's got to kind of be rushed through. If you can minimize the 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 building envelope of a of a window, or the time horizon, I should say, then and people are making serious money, mm. right? And we're talking big dollars. So there's a there's a real incentive again it's a it's a key word I think um, mm. to get that through as, as quickly as possible and get those those properties completed and, and settled so uh, you know uh, it, we, 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 we'll wait to see sort of what the what the results of that are I think um, but there's there's a lot of factors at play there that I think that really just that there's a big incentive to expedite that project and and get it through and get it approved with with maybe not as many checks as there ought to be
0: Now, I I want to put an open invitation out there to our listeners, actually, because, you know, Chris is very, very vocal on this Off the Plan and New, and I'm pretty vocal on it as well. It's all about risk. As an individual buyer, you are taking on an inordinate amount of risk when you buy Off the Plan and Brand New, and I'm not going to go into the detail of why that is. I mean, obviously, we're touching on some of it here. But the thing is, ultimately, the individual owner is the one that cops it You know, down the track, the developers walk away, the builders walk away. Um, You know, they can go broke and and do a Phoenix job. You know, there's a period of time after which the developer and the the builder no longer has any responsibility towards that building and the individual owners do and the owners corporation does, right? So I want to put out an invitation to developers who – In the face of all this opportunity to make money in recent years with the boom and also with support from various levels of government, developers who've made a conscious decision to do it differently rather than just maximising the amount of apartments you can squeeze in your airspace Mm. and and flog them, you know, to maximise your profits. And let's face it, at the end of the day, you're in business. I get it. I get why you do it, you know, and – Dumb investors are you know, willing to line up and buy this stuff, so I get it. I get why mm. you've done it. But I really would love to put the invitation out to someone who hasn't done that, a developer who has deliberately chosen to go swim against the tide. I'd love to hear from you because we'd really love to interview you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, if I was a developer, I would see it as a huge opportunity. Yeah. Like if everyone, 99% out of the 100 people are building this and that's going to have a limited time frame. Cause at some point in the investor market is going to cool off. Right. Yeah. And, the, and it, which has, and so it has, but if you were, you know, zigs and zagged and you went the other way and you said, well, I'm going to build owner a rocket I'm going to build three beds. I'm going to build things that families want. I'm going to build things with bigger green spaces. Yeah. Um, I, and I think a lot of developers will go there now, but I'd love to, you know, see, cause if you're. And today, you're in the industry, you're kind of rep- what everyone else is doing, that's affecting you and yep. your reputation. So,
0: now there's a bit of an irony here because if you go back to episode 51, and I'm not going to tell you listeners what's mm. in there, but go back to episode 51 because we do talk about Opal Tower.
1: Yeah. In light oh. of this. <laughs> wow.
0: And we recorded that episode in September. We didn't release it till January 2019, but we recorded it months earlier. Mm. Um, so there's some interesting chat in there around that, So, mm. but I'm not going to give that away.
2: <laughs> I think if you, if you do purchase a property off the planet, it's worthwhile sort of getting someone to do a, a, a building compliance inspection for you just to sort of identify defects, because there will be a point where the liability of the developer disappears. And often they do disappear. They have different entities that go bankrupt, and they, as you say, they they rise from the ashes and, and do something else. But yeah, you you really want to be upfront in in checking for those defects, and and ideally wherever possible, you know, pre settlement as well. So that's building, a really good point, actually. Yeah. what yeah. is
0: a building compliance inspection? Because that's I mean, I don't buy off the plan, so I don't even yeah. look into this. But what yeah, is so that?
2: there's like there's there's obviously Australian standards for everything to do with construction. So a compliance person could undertake that inspection to see if everything's done. To, to code to, to but see if they they're still can... looking
0: at reports or are they physically looking at the building?
2: They would... Sorry, what do you mean?
0: So the, the building compliance inspector will yep. just look at the reports and, and the sign-offs on paper or will they actually go to the building?
2: They would, they would go and, and, and undertake a full inspection of the building, yeah. Right. How uh,
0: would you inspect bathrooms for waterproofing?
2: yeah i mean that, that's where it comes down to to the design documentation, and often there's you know what is um, is on the design is, is not what is built i mean there's there's a legal tolerance I think it's like five percent so if you buy a you know one hundred square meter place legally it could turn out ninety six uh, square meters and you still have to go with it so there's definitely there's some limitations with that and that's where it's about doing, doing the due diligence of Uh, on that developer. So if they did something somewhere else, it might even be worth, you know, flying somewhere else. But chances are developers are just, if they're smaller, they're doing it in the same location. You know, chat to people that have bought there. Like people are always happy to tell you a painful story (laughs) that they think might impact the revenue of the person that slighted them. Right. Mm. So, so hunt down those projects and see if there are any nasty stories about defects or issues like that. Yeah. I think there's a,
1: I think in development world though, every project's different mm-hmm. and every project's built over a different time frame and has different challenges. Yeah. And you know, what, if one project has gone silky smooth yeah. and is com- come coming on budget, it's, you know, had no real major problems with weather or, you know, just through the digging or yeah. the building or council or, you know, there's, they might bring this amazing product to market with no defects or there might be some very small defects, but. In another project, a developer could have an absolute nightmare, yeah. staffing problems. Yeah. And end of the day, when they get to the end, the every day's money, which is what you were talking about with mm. the ship parked at Sydney Harbour, yeah. every day that, that development's delayed, the more they're, they're clocking up big losses and yeah. they're cutting into their own profits. And so what happens is at that point- Also,
0: you've got a builder, and they may not necessarily have the same builder correct, for each yes. development, but the builder then is in pen, penalty phase as well. <laughs> so yeah. everyone's in, you know under pressure to- yeah. uh, Well, that's right. And they just need to to get it done.
1: And you know, and you can't blame the developer or the builder. They need to get this done. Mm. They need to get this off. Otherwise there's fines and it's all cut into profit margins every day. It's late. And what ends up happening is the person who deals with that biggest problem is the person buying it. Yeah. Because what happens is the earliest possible that they can issue a notice to complete, they send it and then they put all the pressure on the buyer and say, you've got 21 days to settle this. And if you don't settle, you get penalties. And what happens is it scares the hell out of the buyer, mm. and the buyer ends up basically settling with the property that's not completed. Yeah, you know it's got defects. In the, the day, you're paying eight hundred thousand dollars for an apartment. Yeah, it should be perfect. You yeah. wouldn't go buy a brand new car. Yeah. with dents, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. You <laughs> wouldn't give them the money. <laughs> yeah. you, you wouldn't big buy. Big
0: get on your hail damaged car. Yeah, you
1: wouldn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't drive it out and say, "I've just bought this brand new car. It's got a big dent in the front. The boot's missing. A you know, a hole. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm going to sign up to it. But this is eight hundred thousand dollar car you're buying, yeah. And um, it's not new. And until it's and, and if they don't fix it, and you know, you're more likely going to get you know, there's warranties with cars. You can take it back, but with a building, you just yeah. can't.
0: So, Mike, when somebody buys a brand new building and they come to you and say, right, you know, I'm, I'm a brand new investor. I've got a brand new property. Do you do the um the depreciation schedule, or do does it normally get included as part of the sales kit?
2: It normally doesn't. As part of the sales kit, though they, they might get what's called a phase A depreciation estimate, which is normally sort of a one-page marketing tool that says, you know, dear investor or to whom it may concern, if you buy one of the two-bedroom apartments, you'll get roughly eleven to fourteen thousand dollars in the first year of claim. Or if you buy a three-bedder, it might be thirteen to fifteen. And then it sort of says, you know, due to our familiarity with this building, we can do a reduced fee report. You would need to have a full schedule done to be able to rely on it for tax purposes, because it needs to be in your full name your settlement date will be, in a, in a, you know, it'll be a partial financial mm. year in the first year. And then often you might add blinds or something to it as well. So you need mm. to sort of get that tailored. But it doesn't normally come with it. Every now and then you will see a depreciation schedule issued Um with a development, sometimes there is a, a developer that has an arrangement with a quantity surveyor, and they'll do proper depreciation schedules, and then they'll just get the name and the settlement date, and they'll churn them out. Mm. Nothing particularly wrong with that. Other times, you will see what looks like a builder sort of breaking down. Here's what the cost of the unit was, and here's your hot water system and your carpet, and the depreciation rates might be wrong, and then they miss, you know, exhaust fans and hot water systems and the common lifts and Wiring. your entitlement and that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> It was like the first time I got a depreciation schedule on a property, you know, and they had the wiring and my accountant was so impressed. Yeah. Oh, they even this? put the wiring in.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Door stops and
1: shower curtains, yeah, you know, people everything. love those. So while we're here on just on um, tax deductions, I'd just like to get your your views on what's happening with the election. And yeah. uh, I know that for our listeners, we are talking about this a lot, but I think it's, it's really important though, is that we are getting... More views on it because the more views out there, you can helps people to understand it better. So, what's yeah. your view on it?
2: Yeah, my my view is that Labor have backed themselves into a corner and they've come up with a policy that I think was a was a vote grabbing thing. I mean, the, the, certainly there's a the problem with home ownership rates and young people finding it harder to get into into property. But really, they announced a, a policy that was fairly ill thought out, and now we're actually at a point where the experts are saying this could be really damaging, not just to the property market, but to the economy at large, should this be enacted. But, you know, they're not wanting to be that typical politician that's going back on a promise. So they're actually sort of stuck with a policy that stinks. Uh, and I think that they probably know that, you know, the the head of the, the Real Estate Institute is saying it, you know, I spoke to Shane Oliver, he's saying it. Brighter minds than myself are saying that it's a bad idea. Um, Labor have now sort of softened. They've sort of said, "Well, we might, uh, you know, release it within the first sort of 12 months." That kind of shows that there's a little bit of weakness. They're maybe starting to understand that it's a that it's a bad idea. And and you you take a property investor out, they're not automatically replaced with a first homeowner. It's just not how it works. Mm, you know, yep. you, you whack an investor, you don't get an uplift of a first homeowner to the exact same amount. And and, and I I really think that. We're we're just going to create another problem over time when investors are less active, and then there's so much more demand for rentals, and then you know housing affordability, which we always just kind of think of buying, we don't think about renting in yeah. housing affordability. Housing affordability is going to be another national concern because rental yields have been increasing, and if you look at them, they they've done nothing for forever, right? Like rental yields have been flat pretty much everywhere for for ten years give or take, um, and that's because investors have. Been been active and they're providing this housing. The government is out of the public housing business. They own roughly 2% of, of investment housing stock. So investors have an important role to play. And I think it's, uh, yeah, I think I've made my views fairly clear. That's
1: really good. I know. I really, really like that. I mean, there's really, I think your key point there was if you take away investors, it doesn't mean that you're going to replace them with home buyers. And I think that's, you know, when you look at. The numbers and a lot of people who defend the policy, they'll say that, well, yeah, we're going to create better home ownership because investors aren't going to be buying. We're not going to be competing with investors. Yep. Mm. And the problem is when you the houses that first home buyers want, they're not generally competing with investors anyway. Mm. Yeah. You know, they're competing with other home buyers. Yeah. And the and the where investors are being have been buying, and we've, which we've talked about on this podcast, is in areas where other investors are buying. Yep. And so if you want to create housing affordability of new apartments, um, yes, this will do that, but yep. it won't create housing affordability where you really want to buy anyway because yeah. investors aren't buying there. So, well,
0: actually what it will create is housing affordability of second-hand new apartments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And anybody with a right mind wouldn't want to touch on with a barge pole because it's just mm. going to be a saturated market with yeah. very little demand.
2: I got a yeah. little uh, little infographic uh, a year or two ago saying, you know, where do your taxes go? And I thought, oh, this would be interesting. And, and, and obviously, the, the biggest amount is, you know, on, on welfare. And, you know, we've, we've gone past the sort of old Ray Martin story of picking on the dole bludgers and that sort of stuff. But if you look at it, it's it's really sort of the, the age that are costing this the most from a welfare point of view with yeah. age pension and that sort of stuff. So it's easy to look at, you know, negative gearing and net government revenue losses because of negative gearing. But we're we're actually sort of allowing people to invest in their future that are most likely to get to retirement, get a pension test, and they've got no chance of getting a pension. People don't want it. So if you discourage them from investing, you're just creating a problem down the the track. I agree. Episode
0: 45, guys, listen to that. Noel Whittaker, and he talks about that, the true cost of having – aged people or, or the age who are not self-funded. Yeah. So the actual true cost yeah. of having pensioners yeah. in the system, and it's not just obviously the 30 grand a year or whatever it is that they get paid, it's it's actually the the opportunity cost of that money and, and the investment loss and, and et cetera, et cetera, um, and, and lack of uh, taxable income from self-funded uh, retirees as well, you know, yeah. because they a lot of them actually pay tax. Yeah. So... um. And also paying tax throughout the life of owning that property. You know, mm. once you get to the point where you're actually positive cash flow, then you're going to start paying tax. Yeah. And then if you do end up selling it, you're paying tax. Even with the current capital gains uh, um, concession rates, you're still paying tax. Yeah. So, you know, and that's, it's sort of forgetting all of that. It's really focusing on your 9400 Dollars, you know deduction that you claim in your first year and sort of focusing on that and that would diminish down to yeah i mean at what point do most people go cash flow neutral
2: uh cash flow neutral like from a depreciation point of view the the methods sort of cross over after about seven years which i think is roughly when people tend to sell properties it depends where you buy and the yields and that sort of stuff Mm, but it's only going to be a couple of years on average right Yeah. yeah and and you know People sort of um, forget that you know there are people that say oh, too, I've got too much tax. I want to buy an investment property, but most people don't buy an investment to lose money. Eventually, mm-hmm. over time, they want it to put money in their in their pocket. They don't want to be having to pay to hold yeah. onto it. So it's only negatively geared for a short time. And I think there's a problem with the ATO stats as well. They're they're normally sort of three years behind because you think you know it's tax time and then you got you're registered with your accountant. You got till next May to do your tax return. Um, the ATO website site is perpetually down so i i don't know how much effort they put into producing the stats but we're looking at negative gearing um, losses at a time where interest rates were a lot higher because mm. we're actually sort of talking at the past mm. yeah. i think in relative terms the last release said that negative gearing losses went up marginally but you you put you you know you you adjust that for population growth and all those sorts of things it was pretty flat and i think it will probably go down mm. and with a lot of investors now forced into you know principal and, and Interest, we're not going to have those big sort of interest only loans. I, I think that the negative gearing losses are, are blown out of proportion when you consider what's waiting for us at the back end trying to look after people. Yeah, good point. Yeah. But you don't win power with a you know
1: good policy for 30 years, you win. <sighs> That's a real real problem of
2: leadership in Australia. It always seems to be about, you know, getting elected for the next term and then some of these sort of grandiose ideas like superannuation is not a really old idea, right? Like John Howard getting rid of guns, right? These things are maybe politically suicide in in this environment because we've got governments that are winning by slim majorities and everyone Mm -hmm. wants to sort of cling on to power. We we lack people that, you know, are are looking at these, yeah, like the snowy hydro sort of thing. Oh, that'll be finished 30 years after I've sort of left, so you know, mm. how much am I worried about? I want someone that wants to come in and maybe just go, you know what, I'm not going to get re-elected because I'm going to sort of implement ideas that I think are for the betterment of the country and then I'll let history decide, you know, how worthwhile it was. <laughs> Good luck with that journey.
1: <laughs> Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Some things that end up costing them a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Mike, can you give us an example of a property Dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories.
2: Yeah, I feel like Dumbo is a hard one and I feel a little bit sort of mean about it. There was one um, particular property where um, a a lady purchased off the plan and um, she ended up... uh, not having a depreciation schedule for around about eight years. And I I kind of thought, oh, I don't necessarily want to talk about a particular person, but I found another one, another case that was even worse, an an anonymous one. Someone bought a brand new unit in the Gold Coast and um, I think it was around about uh, nine or 10 years before they actually engaged us to prepare a depreciation schedule. Now, at that time you might have been able to back claim four years worth of deductions, but there's still a a massive years where they wouldn't have been able to access those depreciation claims. So because they didn't buy through a buyer's agent who could educate them on that or they didn't have a broker that, that understands the importance of depreciation. Or, or
0: accountant? Yeah, an accountant? Yeah, exactly. It. You mm.
2: wonder, you know, are they doing their own tax return? If you're mm. a property investor, don't do your own tax yes. return. That's, that's a, a takeaway I'd like to sort of leave today. But the, the end result is they lost around about $70,000 worth of, of tax deductions over that time window where they would have lost that claim. Had wow. they had they have got a depreciation schedule from day one or even within the first three years, that the, the, the difference on their taxable income over that 10 or so years, um, eight to 10 years, was around about 70 grand, which, you know, like it could have been 20 or $30,000 back in their pocket. Wow. And when people sort of say, you know, um, 20,000, $30,000 back in your pocket, like I can, I've spent that in my head already. I yeah. can already think yeah. where that could go. <laughs> and I think, you know, like- when people win the lotto, they do stupid stuff with it because it doesn't feel real to mm. them. They don't make sensible decisions. And I think leaving money on the table feels the same. It's not real. But if there's money sitting there in, in front of it or someone transfers it into your bank account, suddenly it has a you know yeah. much more of a value, becomes a real thing. So I, I think that, that that's my dumbo of the, of the week. Uh, it's just, you know, it's not getting the right advice. It's not being educated about the property and, yeah, just leaving money on the table.
1: And how hard is it to get a depreciation report? Really, it's just a phone call. Yeah. You know, Don't even have to pick well,
2: up the phone. Send, yeah, and, send, send an, an email. E- send an
1: email. And for what is it? Five, six hundred bucks maybe? Yeah, yeah. Something yeah, around that. Yeah,
2: on average around about $600 yeah. is, is so, the marketplace.
1: You know, you're paying $600 and, you know, do you do a... If you don't get that type of deduction, yeah. do you do a refund?
2: Yeah, there's a, there's a few companies that have the sort of catchphrase of, you know, double the fee or it's free, that sort yeah. of stuff. Mine, mine like, is really, really clunky. It's like, um, you know, <laughs> we'll give you the option to cancel it without charge if your accountant says it's not worthwhile, right? Because maybe if we find $900 worth of deductions and we've charged, you know, we're going to charge $600, we might say, you know, take that to your account and say, is it worth paying $600 uh, to get this $900 yep. d- deductions in the first year? And they'll say, well, yeah, like because you're not going to sell it for 10 years, right? So yep. over time you're talking five grand. So I've f- got to find a way to put that into yep. a tighter catchphrase. Yeah, <laughs> so it's one of
1: those guarantees that you know you're never going to have to pay out yep. on because, you know, 99% of people are going to yep. dwarf their fee many times, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. We, we don't do it unless we know that it's beneficial. Yeah, yep. very uh, good.
0: Mike? You've set up a page for our listeners, mm. so thank you for that. It's, uh, we'll put the link in the show notes, but in case you, uh, you know, have a really good memory for this. So the, the website is uh, mcgqs.com.au forward slash elephant in the room mm. and he'll provide a free depreciation review of a property you already have or are looking at, share the data from today that we've discussed and also offer your listeners a reduced fee. Mm, So thank you so much. Great marketing
2: idea, that one. That's the best sort of show bag I can (laughs) can bring.
0: We appreciate that. And look, uh, thank you so much for, and obviously we'll put the the link in the show notes in in terms of how to get hold of you too, Mm -hmm. if people do want to actually engage you to a depreciation schedule or your business. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Mike. We've really enjoyed our chat. There's been some... Nice little revelations in there and certainly I've learnt uh, quite a lot of things. So sh- thank you for coming along and sharing your wisdom with us.
2: been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. Cheers.
1: We want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's elephant rider training is...
0: Well, when we were talking to Mike it became really loud and clear the mistakes that investors can make if they don't get good advice before they buy a property and certainly Mike gave a dumbo over the week around somebody that actually bought a couple of people that bought investment properties off the plan and it doesn't even matter whether you buy them off the plan or not to be quite frank but they didn't get depreciation schedules and how much money they left on the table so let's talk about the people that you need to get advice from there's a million people out there with there's a million people out there with opinions when it comes to property. So you've got to be careful, right? Number one, get a good accountant, a good accountant who understands tax and who actually preferably understands property, although that's going to be rare. Um, what you want to do is a good accountant who understands tax so that you get your structure set up you know, correctly in the first place, but also they will make sure you get a depreciation schedule if you're buying an investment property so you don't lose out in that way. The second person that you want to get on your team is a good mortgage broker. And once again, you want to get somebody who's very experienced, very investment savvy and can help you not only get the best deal, but actually get the best type of loan for your circumstances. The third person you want to get on board, I really recommend you get a financial planner because if you are buying an investment property, you are supposedly planning for your long-term future. Find a planner who understands property and where it fits in the mix. You need to basically make sure that you do have a long-term plan and that you are preparing adequately for your future, but also insurances and those other things that are really important. The fourth person, you're going to need a lawyer. When you do find a property, you're going to need to get a lawyer who, or a conveyancer who can actually um, advise you on that contract and get advice early on on that. And lastly, I recommend getting a buyer's agent. Once again, though, don't get a buyer's agent who just gives you what you say you want. Get one who actually will advise you, somebody who actually knows what they're talking about and doesn't just go, oh, yeah, I'll get you a property as I mentioned earlier in this episode, I reckon 5 to 10% maximum available property, available property at any given time is actually good investment. So you want the type of buyer's agent who's actually going to find those types of property for you. And bring attention to your own flawed thinking and how that can actually cost you in the long term.
1: I just want to second that little point where Veronica said, find advisors that actually advise you and don't just give you what you want I think that's the key takeaway here is you actually want someone who's going to be, you know, sitting there playing devil's advocate, looking at all your options and actually saying, look, this is or is not the best thing for you and he's actually got your best interests at heart. So that's what an advisor is. They're not just a facilitator.
0: Join us for our next episode when we have a special April Fool's edition. Now, this is going to be an annual edition and it is going to coincide with our annual report called fools or forecasters. Now I hope that's got your interest piqued because what we're going to do is look at some of the forecasts and some of the forecasters that have been very vocal in 2018 and now we have the benefit of hindsight. Who should we have listened to? Who's got it right? Who's got it spectacularly wrong? Who were the serial offenders? We're also going to go back 10 years and look at what information was out then and if you acted on it, What position would you be in today? Now, we are learning so much through this research. We're really excited to share it with you. You definitely want to listen to this episode.
1: Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter.
0: Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you.
1: Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you.
0: The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher.
1: Until next week, don't be a dumbo.
0: Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.